0: Well, good evening. It's uh, wonderful to have a little of this time with you tonight. Um, So, I imagine that I'll talk a little bit about the chi of love. (laughs) This retreat has been um, so wonderful in its unfolding. Really, as we practice in the way that we have, really the whole, uh, the whole Dharma, the whole process of awakening and, uh, and growing up becomes present. So often the practice of, of mindfulness Uh, and the dharma practice is so much about waking up. And I think that it's a very important balance for us to understand that we're also growing up, too. There's a certain quality of of maturity, both um, psychological and uh, emotional, of course. So tonight, I think I'll share with you <clears throat> some of the important elements that bring these two wonderful streams of practice together and talk somewhat on the, on the principles of um, Qigong and Dharma. And um, as we have practiced, you can see where that, how that arises, how that's present in your, uh, in your practice. Uh, One of the amazing things about the practice of metta and the connection with Qigong is that there comes about a kind of a, of a trust in, uh, in our being. There's a sense in which the, um, the horizontal, uh, what I might call the horizontal connection that we have with one another uh, in which there's a, a, a wonderful amount of uh, nourishment that takes place. But it can become uh, clouded if we look to, that, um, to others always as the source of um, uh, recognition or the source of satisfaction. So very much the practice of dharma is about connecting with this vertical um, sense this sense of self, of really learning how to trust ourselves. The practice of meditation is not to get better at meditation. And the practice of uh, Qigong is not really to get better at Qigong either. Both of these are important kind of gateways or doorways that can open to a kind of quality of well-being. And this well-being, I think that we may have really connected with to a certain degree. And I'm I'm sure and I trust that each of you have felt um, the liberating effect of connecting with your heart, connecting with this field of of loving presence as we entitled this uh, retreat. It's not that it's so rare in our world, but it does often take the, the back seat. And because it does, um, so many other things kind of come over, cloud over. And the uh, practices that we do help to open up and bring us present to uh, what is most essential. So I think Dharma practice in and of itself is about that awakening up and connecting then to what is most essential in our lives. When we set our intention to uh, connect with that which is most essential, uh, what, what is in the way tends to show up. And so we must have a practice, this practice of, of metta also, uh, and, the, and the qigong are about this wonderful crucible of practice. In this crucible, the, the fire of our hearts, the fire of our intention kind of helps to, to uh, open up in a certain way, you know, purify those things. Uh, I'd like to read a little poem that I particularly like that's kind of in relationship to this, a, a way of kind of connecting to that which is sacred. I have far more pages than I'm actually going to read tonight, so don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it was right here all along. This uh, particular poem is uh, by Diane Ackerman. Probably many of you know this commonly. Quoted poem, but it's. I think it's very relevant for us on the meta retreat to uh, to hear these beautiful words by Dan. This one called "School Prayer." In the name of the daybreak and the eyelids of morning, and the wayfaring moon, and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, and as a messenger of wonder, and as an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors, and the day that embraces it, and the cloud veils drawn over it, And the uttermost night and the male and the female and the plants bursting with seed and the crowning seasons of the firefly and the apple, I will honor all life, wherever and in whatever form it may dwell on earth, my home and in the mansion of the stars. For me, that would be a great prayer to do in school. And uh, really honoring that connection, that interconnection that's been spoken about so much this week. The practices of the of the qigong and its relationship to the dharma are really very old. Um, we know this connection with Buddhism and with the Buddhist traditions through a particular uh, patriarch saint uh, that came from India to China. His name was Bodhidharma. Perhaps you've heard of Bodhidharma. It's probably about the. Uh, the 5th or 6th century CE. And Bodhidharma um, came to China and spent a number of years there um, in reflection, contemplation, and um, had brought the teachings of the Dharma to China. Now, he wasn't the first to bring the teachings to China. Uh, From early on, those pathways across the uh, Malias and uh, into China and various routes were connected with with uh, teachers and teaching, but he brought a certain kind of practice that was uh, was come to know to be known in China as Chan, and later on we know it more out of its uh, Japanese name, which is Zen. But Bodhidharma did something else that was quite significant when he went to the Shaolin monastery back in those days, he noticed that the the monks there were really low in vitality. And they were were meditating all the time, but their chi was really low. Uh, And they were ill and not really able to sustain the kind of uh, concentration and vigor that opens up into genuine insight. So out of that, he apparently came with, we, we don't really know because all of this is kind of lore, but w- what we do know is there are some significant practices that he brought to uh, the monks to help to bring about vitality. Um, that's called Qigong, but I'm kind of guessing that um, since he came from India, it was more out of the yogic tradition. And perhaps it met some of the Taoist uh, practices of um, health and well-being, the ways that they practiced uh, their, their uh, medicine with uh, Qigong. Nevertheless, the Yijin Jing was born in these wonderful foundational practices that helped to bring strength and vitality. And those are the practices that we are we are doing now. We're doing uh, a variation, a an evolution, if you will, of some of those uh, wonderful ancient practices. Um, as it turned out, that uh, the practices brought about so much vitality that the that the the Shaolin monks later incorporated incorporated it into their martial arts and um, use that as a way of getting strong as a way of uh, being more effective in their practice. Of course, as monks their primary piece was to uh, was to uh, express nonviolence. the same ethical content that um, that we appreciate today, and when we uh, when we took the precepts that um, Temple guided us through, um, the essence of those precepts is present in all of the teachings of the, of the Shaolin as well. So in a sense, um, that ahimsa, that non-harming is so important and that connected with essential respect and respect for all of life. So um, Bodhidharma became the first patriarch uh, in that way of Zen. And then later on, the uh, practices moved all over, moved to, to, uh, went up to Korea, moved to Japan. But this is relevant for us in this way, because the Dharma has now found itself here in the West, in uh, the United States and Europe, and really, it's in almost every place in the world now. Um, when the Buddha sent out his monks to do teachings, he said, you know, speak in the vernacular of the people that you connect with and where you're going. Um, and I really see that. I see and feel how these practices of the ancient Dharma, the, the initial teachings, the what we call the Theravadan teachings, or the core old school uh, teachings of the Dharma, uh, still have incredible relevancy. And yet now they're met with um, uh, neuroscience. Uh, we, we meet um, science and understanding both our, the physiology, the neurology, uh, all these important aspects of our being connect with the Dharma. And they inform one another. So uh, the Dalai Lama was asked um, not that long ago um, about reincarnation and about science. And uh, uh, they, uh, they asked him, um, what if, what if uh, science proved that there was no reincarnation? We so sat there for a moment, the way that only the Dalai Lama can. And, well, then, we'd have to go with science. <laughs> but that kind of open-heartedness uh, really, sh- really showed that, that the, the Dharma is not about a fixed set of beliefs. And then, of course, his retort was, well, what if science proves that there is reincarnation? (laughs) And, of course, the person would say, well, yeah, of course. Um, The important point of that is to understand that there is a merger. There is an evolution. And yet the heart, the core of the teachings of the Dharma survive in this most wonderful way. And I don't think we have to worry, are we polluting the Dharma with our... Uh, understanding of psychology, our understanding of neuroscience. Um, the heart of the Dharma is always uh, rather self-evident. The reason for this is, as you well know, is because we practice to discover for ourselves what is so. And this is actually the heart of the Kalama Sutra and uh, various teachings that say, you know, it's important to doubt, it's important to question, and to really find out for ourselves what is so. And also in that important teaching of the Kalama Sutra, um, this essence of ethics is also present. Ethics not in terms of what you should do or shouldn't do, but because you connect with the heart of the essence of the practice and you understand this interconnectedness of all of life. The, you see, as Dori was saying the other night, she was actually quoting the Kalama Sutra. She said, if you see if something is good and it brings about good results, then continue to do that thing. Mm-hmm. If you notice that a behavior that you, you take on does not bring about goodness, then that's something to stop. This is the essence. This is a real important ethical fulcrum for us. So the the Dharma and the beautiful teachings of Metta are more relevant than ever now. Um, In a world that is spinning off in some amazing ways, and uh, disconnecting with this essential respect for all of life. The essential respect for what arises um, in the beauty of the animal kingdom, in the redwood trees. I've done um, many kind of concerts for uh, the redwoods over the years to help to preserve the natural uh, forests, what's left of the old-growth trees. Um, it's always amazing to me to look into these beautiful trees that are, that are uh, still around here, and the redwood trees, and to understand that a redwood forest actually has nine times the biomass of a forest in the Amazon. It moves, any one tree can move um, you know, hundreds of gallons of water a day. So, paying attention to the uh, welfare of trees, to the welfare of all of life, is so important. This teaching has been present in um, in human appreciation, in human life, for millennia. Um, There is an important uh, text that uh, has to do with what's called Indra's Net. And I'd I'd just love to read for you a little bit about this um, uh, ancient sutra. And I, of course, will find it here shortly. (laughs) So this would uh, have arisen, this text would have arisen before the time of the Buddha. And it was an appreciation then, as we appreciate now, what we're talking about when we're talking about interconnectedness, interrelational presence, interpenetration of all of life. So, this is a short piece on, on Indra's net. So far away in the heavenly abode of Indra, the king of the gods, there was an unknown artisan who had hung a wonderful net that stretches out indefinitely in all directions. Just imagine that for a moment. In accordance with the vastness of the sky, the artisan had hung a single glittering jewel at the net's every node, so moving through time and space, in those junctures, those nodes, there was a jewel. And since the net itself is infinite in dimension, the jewels are infinite in number. There the jewels hang, glistening like stars in the sky, a wondrous sight to behold. If one was to randomly select one of these jewels for inspection and looked at it closely, one would discover that it is a polished surface, that on its polished surface is reflected all the other jewels in the net, infinite in number. Not only that, but each of the jewels reflected in this one jewel is also reflecting all the other jewels, so that the process of reflection is without end. This wonderful sense of our connection, that the jewel in the heart, that um, Spring talked about last night in this uh, ancient chant of Om Mani Padme Hom. It means this jewel in the lotus of our own heart really reflects and connects with all other hearts. When we practice Qigong, sometimes I say, that life which beats your heart beats all hearts. And the life that looks out of my eyes looks back. And it is one life, it's one life. And yet we appreciate and have this wonderful um, dimension of the individuality of each of us. When Spring was talking this morning, she was talking about kind of the relative and absolute. So we can appreciate that this life that runs through the Indra's net that connects uh, connects us heart to heart, kind of connects us with that absolute nature. And yet it does not diminish in any way the individual value of each life. Beautiful. Beautiful mystery, a true koan for us to continue to contemplate. Koan, if that's a new word for some of you in the Zen tradition that I practice as a Renzai Zen priest, it is um, kind of a, uh, a puzzle, often a linguistic puzzle, um, that can't necessarily be answered from a top-down way, the prefrontal cortex mediated awareness, which we call thinking, (laughs) is only one of the many um, ways of appreciating, of feeling of connecting. So it that particular way of the, of the mind is one about the discriminating nature. So we must be able to think well, we must be able to um, appreciate and discern, and yet it's not the only thing that's available to us. So when we practice the arts uh, like of Qigong, in the way that we're doing in the connection with the Dharma, it opens us up to this language of feeling. So uh, there can be more emotional fluency, more awareness, more wakefulness in the whole being. This uh, enhances the ways that we can connect, the ways that we can relate. How can we be in relationship in this wonderful, skillful way? Learning how to purely listen, learning how to be present in compassionate awareness. Such a gift that we can potentially give to one another. And this gift is one of the potentials of humanity. If we are to survive this next amazing bloom of population, of climate change, of the changing of the resources, of the extinction of species. Compassionate heart, our respect for all of life, is absolutely essential to it. It's not like an add-on. We must get there. And doing the practice that we're doing now is one of the ways that we open up to learning, appreciating, uh, feeling, learning the language of feeling. As I said, I was born in the Midwest. I am an Iowan. Born in Iowa, I loved Iowa, and uh, it was, it's actually quite a great place to be from. <laughs> but I, I grew up with, with very strong, uh, beautiful values. They were essentially Christian values, but it wasn't like evangelical or uh, something like that. My grandfather taught me how to garden. We had a beautiful garden. Um, we would, uh, we would plant corn and, and we actually, we ate out of that garden, uh, all year round. The reason was that my grandmother had a freezer <laughs> and, um, I remember that, um, it was very special on the 4th of July that we would go out and pick, uh, all the cherries on this tree, um, and then we'd bring them in and take the pits out and she would take, m- Probably most of them put them in these containers and stick them in the uh, in the freezer, and then on you know Christmas or something like that, she'd break out one of those and we'd have fresh cherry pie. It was just amazing. Um, but that and just remember the the sense of growing corn, and um, uh, how important it was to tend the soil and so on. And so I I have a very vivid memory of being um, with my grandfather. And we were uh, planting seeds of corn, and I asked him. We we had this special process, and we'd we'd actually catch fish, and and um, and there were probably bluegill or carp or something like that, and we would cut them and put three pieces of uh, of fish, and he then he would put the the the, you know, three pieces of. Of seed right on top of that um, fish, and um, we grew the most delicious um, uh, <laughs> sweet corn. I asked him, "Where did you learn? Where, where did you learn to do this, Grandpa?" He said uh, that uh, a Native American who had been living in that in the town had showed him, had taught him that. So, learning and feeling that connection to the past and to the ancient roots is so important. We don't want to lose that. That's just, you know, that's, that's vital for the health and well-being in the sense of our connection with life, with vitality. Um, with the gift of the ancients, with the gifts of our ancestors. But I think what I wanted to say was also in my grandparents' house, um, my grandmother, this is on my mother's side, had three sisters, and one of those sisters lived with us, and her name was Leona. And Leona um, was uh, um, had been a missionary, actually, in China from about 1909 into uh, the 40s, actually. She, she was there for seven years, would return for a year, and so on. So I knew her towards the end of her life. She died when I was about 15 years old. But I grew up with her, and I grew up in a household that was just full of all these amazing uh, pieces of art. And, uh, but more important than that were the stories that she brought to me and my siblings. So I'm going to cry again because it, <laughs> I'm feeling that. <laughs> right, thanks, those are the tissues. <coughs> right. Powerful, powerful to remember that with you. But out of those, you know, out of those stories became kind of a natural tendency, uh, uh, an openness to hearing about um, a different way of life, a different, um, uh, different stories than the Grimm's fairy tales. Like, you know, we would ask Aunt Leona, you know, tell us the story of Titioki or some other you know, wonderful ancient Chinese story. And we would, we lived with those and we grew up with those. So when it was time for me to, when I first met my first uh, um, martial arts teacher, it was like, yeah, let's go. This was not, this was, and remember, this is Iowa. <laughs> you, you know, they still, you know, in those days, yoga was the work of the devil and so on, like that. So, so connecting with um, Tatsumo Mikami, my first teacher, and uh, um, you know, he would sit us down in the dojo. There was just a few of us. Um, he'd sit us down in the dojo, and we were to meditate, like for five minutes. So I don't know, I'm 13 or 14 years old, and five minutes is an eternity. (laughs) But we'd we'd sit there nevertheless, and um, it was kind of my first connection there with the contemplative process in relationship to cultivating uh, awareness, to cultivating skill. Uh, And that particular aspect continued to grow as I... um, connected with more internal arts practices. I've been practicing Aikido since 1971. I'm kind of an international teacher in that particular wonderful non-violent art. Um, many of the things that I share with you here are directly informed by this, this uh, art of O Sensei's of, of Aikido. But that also, and then connected with the with the streams and the flows of um, the Chinese arts. Now the Chinese arts that we, that we practice, the Qigong, the Radiant Heart Qigong, is, is also an evolution of my comparative research over a lifetime. So I'm not making up these practices. <laughs> but, I have, um, but I have, through comparative practice, understood that many of them are very similar. And then over the time of these, of these many years of teaching that I've also seen that um, uh, these are really valuable practices. Um, I've had, as I said, so many um, wonderful opportunities here at Spirit Rock and Zen communities, somewhat in the Vajrayana communities to practice these arts and also to draw from them the, the essence. For, so from the Tibetan traditions, there are a few wonderful practices that are quite relevant, really useful to us as meditators. And the Zen tradition, probably over the last, you know, between 15 and 20 years, I've been practicing with my with my Roshi uh, Junpo in the Rinzai Zen Hollow Bones Order. And um, right from the very beginning of that uh, relationship, uh, when we first met, it was very clear that we both had something, and he really wanted me to come in, so I would teach as many as three classes in the in uh, in our Zen shashins over the years. I'd do you know probably four, five, six shashins. very rigorous practice, and so the the qigong, really the the deep caring, the meta caring for our bodies. Um, um, if any of you know Zen, or have been, you know, exposed to that, I'm very sorry. And, uh, but uh, the, uh, you'll know that the, the rigor in some of those traditions is not always met with, um, shall we say, skillful means. In fact, often the, 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 you want to know the meditation instructions for Rinzai Zen? <laughs> well, it's about that much, but if you get more than that, it's sit down and shut up. Actually, so over the years it's gotten much kinder, and there's uh, there's recognizing that sit down and shut up didn't flow that well with Western minds, and um, so we we need more we. We need more um, understanding and this understanding, this kind of the philosophical um, part of it, I think is essential and that's why I'm very, very fortunate here at Spirit Rock to have these great teachings of the Dharma. And we have you know, wonderful teachers to bring forward the essence of the Dharma and uh, get these as a way of understanding on, that, uh, on the cognitive level what it is to practice and how to skillfully practice. So, that's kind of um, a bit of the, of where the practices have come from for me. And the, the value that I see in the integration and the integral aspect of the the dharma with the practices of embodiment. So what exactly is embodiment in this case? It's not the action itself, because any particular action could be a wonderful action for embodiment. But the skills of the qigong really allow us in the context of our deep practice, whether it be metta, um, insight, um, any of these uh, zen, uh, allow the, the connection to feeling so we can feel through the, uh, the connection with the words and what the meaning is and begin to presence that in our practice. So this word presence in the way that I sometimes will use the term presence awareness. It's kind of like another way of talking about mindfulness. Mindfulness itself is a word that's so commonly um, now accepted, uh, pretty much in the United States and Europe, and it's part of now it's part of corporate culture and so on. Um, which is actually a good thing, <laughs> believe me. I. Um, I have the great fortune, actually, to consult for even a Fortune 500 company. And so I do work with upper-level management and so on. I'll tell you a funny little story in relationship to that. Um, The very first uh, time I went to do a short retreat with, with, uh, they said, oh yeah, we're going to send you all of our, I'm going to send you our high-level, uh, Executives and vice presidents and upper-level management said, "Okay, great, lovely, love to, love to work with anybody." So I walked into the room, into the room, and what I saw was people in their thirties, you know, and uh, (laughs) "Hmm." but I did understand something very important about uh, about an aspect of corporate life, that they really push them hard and people burn out. And what I, what I recognized in, um, in doing this work and what I still see is that um, this over-stressing, this, um, this incredible push, you can do it when you're young to a certain degree, but by the time you come into your 40s, 50s, 60s, nah, it's not working. So the, um, the, the practice of really deeply caring for ourselves and learning these skills, this is not, you know, you don't learn Qigong in college, right? Or high school or any other of these places. You don't learn the essence of mindfulness or kind-heartedness or loving presence. We, we come to a retreat, we come to a place like this to practice, to see for ourselves the value of it. So um, I have to say that, those, that that practice is going very well, that connection with um, the corporate community and bringing the, the feeling of kindness. So I, I feel fortunate to be able to also work in that um, domain, in that arena, because what happens, and what I've heard over the years that I've done this, is that it ha- this is actually... A trickle-down effect that actually works. <laughs> it's not the other economic one that doesn't really work, and I know you know what I'm talking about. So, uh, but this one does. When and uh, each of our teachers have talked about this in certain ways. When you connect with that kindness in yourself, when you can presence that kindness in yourself, you um, there is. There are mirror neurons. There's a way in which it connects, which it actually entrains, and helps another feel that sense of settledness. That together with the skills that we're learning, I think are very important. To understand that these are skillful means. The learning how to connect and bring metta to ourselves is a skill, is a skillful way of being. And the essence of these practices are exactly that. They must be practiced. They need to be nourished in practice. And they are worthwhile um, in sustaining uh, because of the ongoing benefit that they bring. So when we do our Qigong practice, when we do our metta practice, there's something that happens right then. There's something, uh, some access doorway that may potentially be there. But as you continue to work with these wonderful skills, there is also an accumulative effect. It definitely impacts in the nervous system. It changes our relationship of the, uh, to the uh, sympathetic nervous system, the way that we um, are in reaction, fight-or-flight, freeze mode, and then can learn how to calm, how to be calm, and um, learn the the actual value of balance and harmony. When we practice and we work with this aspect of balance, it's not a static state. It's alive. It's growing. It evolves. So, when I would watch um, Osensei do his practices or watch other of my teachers. Once I asked um, uh, uh, asked my teacher, Robert Nadeau, I said, don't you ever lose your balance? He said, yeah, sure, I lose my balance all the time. I said, really, I don't see that you lose your balance. He says, yeah, but I recover really fast. And there's there's something funny about that, but there's also some real truth to it that part of the skill in the metta, in the awareness, in the mindfulness, is a kind of recovery. There's a recovery here that um, that allows us more uh, and deeper, better access to this essential heart of uh, well-being. When I was preparing my papers, this was the most important one for me. I said, remember this one. This is it. It's my Zen side coming forward. There are so many things to uh, to talk about and to share. Um, But really, for me, the the essence of it is that we are in relationship. We are in relationship and that the, um, the strength and the goodness of that understanding, the relational aspect, comes with the cultivation and the presence of this um, loving awareness, this loving presence. When we cultivate this loving presence, there's a sense that really opens in our heart, so that we are whole, we feel whole. We don't need um, uh, the assurance from without. It's always beautiful and wonderful to have that, but it's not absolutely vital. We're not reaching out to be uh, affirmed by going outside of ourselves. That's one of the beautiful accumulative effects of awareness um, and presence that happens with our Dharma practice. So I think... I want to complete, and um, to complete I want to read uh, a poem that I wrote here in uh, 2004 when I was doing the month-long retreat. Those retreats are very, um, are really deep and transformative for, for all of us who are on them or who to teach them and so on, very profound. Um, opportunity for quite deep work. We're doing that same deep work here. Um, the arc of a month long goes like that. The arc of this retreat goes like that. It's the same arc. We're, go- we're going through the same um, process of connection, of, um, of kind of some deconstruction. Um, and then bringing things back together. So whether the retreat is a seven-day retreat like ours is, or whether it's 30 days, the benefit, the heart of it is there. Given some of the longer retreats, um, there's a little more spacious time to work on um, various aspects to really drop into what um, Spring was talking about as concentration last night. Or was it this morning? (laughs) One of the aspects of retreat is timeless space, right? Timelessness. That's why Temple has this, you know, say what day it is. (laughs) I want to just say one thing about um, about Concentration. Doing each of the practices, doing the metta practice as we do, doing the qigong practice as we do, helps to nurture and cultivate this natural sense of focused attention and presence. Now, notice for yourself, if you you will, that the contraction that is generally part of concentration is not so much present in these practices that concentration, to use that word, can also be very spacious and open. It is a quality of poise, uh, that sense of settling, that sense of um, ease through the body. That's why our Qigong becomes very important, because it directly connects with the nervous system. It tones and strengthens the nervous system. It also positively impacts, you know, all the other systems of the body. When I was with, um, I was with Fritzov Kopra last week, and some of you will know who he is. He wrote The Tao of Physics. The Tao of Physics was written back in the 70s, and it's still like a very relevant book. He is one of the great uh, systems thinkers of, of uh, our times. And he said something to me um, and to this small group of people that we were connected with, um, that I thought was uh, quite important. He said, systemic problems require systemic solutions. So that may sound simple, and it is, but we have the ability now to solve most all of the problems that are present on the earth. We have the knowledge. We have the means. We even have the money. What's lacking? So we know know what's missing here. And so this sense of engagement that we bring our dharmic hearts to is so important. So the um, When we practice our metta, when we practice our qigong, it is whole system, it's the whole body. When we rest in that presence that is collected awareness that allows us to direct our attention anywhere, that's a kind of concentration, but it is spacious. And this comes with the integration and the integral quality of um, good dharmic teachings with good qigong. So I'll complete then with um, reading this poem, <coughs> and I called "The Qigong of Radiant Wonder." In silent, radiant wonder, stillness becomes motion and movement becomes stillness. Soft and serene along the core of brilliant light, luminous clarity becomes you. From the center of the heart along the rays of pulsing liquid fire, recognition flows out in every direction to meet itself as the essence of love, kindness, joy, and every fine quality that brings balance and equanimity into being. The radiant fire of love is so gentle that even a single snowflake can land and be enhanced by its light as it transforms from nature to essential nature. So all-pervasive, that it spins the spiral galaxies throughout vast eternal space, always one, indivisible. As the center, you are at once infinitely small and endlessly infinite, fresh presence awareness. You are the sparkling dew in the moonlight and the ocean of stars. Illumination unfolds with the song of birds and frogs, attuning to the water's flow over earth and stone. Who breathes this radiant breath through hands and feet and stands inside the healing flow of rainbow fountains? Resting, resting in the pearl lanterns strung along the spiraling cords of silver, blue, white, and gold, extending from the heart of the earth to the heart of heaven, forever flowing streams, meeting in my heart, your heart, all hearts. The golden dragon dances through space and balances on the floating bridge of heaven. The golden ball moves through the eight actions in empty forms, healing, nourishing, vitalizing. Illumination shines from within as the river of peace flows in the land of infinite wordless blessings. In the stillness, the wings of the dragonfly glitter with a thousand worlds of miraculous light. Shapes and colors dissolve every illusion into the essential nature of being, like ice to water and water to mist. The body being empty like a hollow reed, open arms embrace the one. From what is out and what is in, there is no difference. Through Thousands of appearances, and though thousands of appearances arise and disappear, there has been no other. Only silence speaks the supreme word. Only illumination gives the true response. The white crane dreams of flight and cools its wings in the morning mist the way of effortless action and ease of becoming opens before you. My radiant ones, hearts of pure light, awaken fearless in the night. Remember the wisdom that is content-less, bright, and the warm, compassionate heart of light. Share your love with all beings, in all worlds, in all times. Dissolve all suffering and every illusion into the essential nature, luminous, clear light. Like ice to water and water to. Thank you so much for your kind and generous attention, and um, I hope that is some value to you. So we have a little period for uh, walking, and we'll come back at nine and do some chanting. Tonight we're going to chant the Prajnaparamita from the Heart Sutra as well. All the best. Thank you.